You are listening to the Teaching Matters podcast, a podcast created by the University of Edinburgh to debate and celebrate learning and teaching in higher education. This podcast complements the university's Teaching Matters blog and invites students and staff to engage in topical conversations. Episodes 12 to 14 accompany the Teaching Matters mini-series on inclusivity in the curriculum. In episode 14, two Commonwealth scholars, Vivek and Ugo, discuss their experiences of diversity and inclusion during their study at the University of Edinburgh. The discussion is led by our guest host from London, Annabel Baud, who is Programme Manager Policy at the Commonwealth Scholarship Commission. Happy listening. All right, okay, welcome. Um, So we're here today uh, to talk about discussing experiences of diversity and inclusion in higher education. Um, We're here with two Commonwealth scholars from the University of Edinburgh, I'm Annabelle Bowd. I'm the Program Manager Policy at the Commonwealth Scholarship Commission in the UK. Um, I'll ask you to both introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about the program that you're studying and how long you've been in Edinburgh. Ugo? Okay, um, good afternoon. My name is Ugo Chuku Okoye. I'm from Nigeria and I'm a master's student at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm doing a master's in Africa and international development on the Commonwealth Scholarship. Fantastic. And Ugo is joining us um, from Nigeria today, where he's doing his fieldwork. Thank you very much for making the time to join us. And Vivek? Yes. Hello. My name is Vivek Pachpande. I'm from India, Bombay, or Mumbai, as they call it now. Um, I'm a PhD um, research scholar here at the University of Edinburgh in, uh, in philosophy, and I'm working in the area of uh, knowledge. So my, my topic basically is to investigate whether we, we can know anything false. So that's my research area. All right, fantastic. Um, so we'll go into our questions now. Ugo and Vivek, we'll just, um, I might ask you some questions directly, some of the questions I'll ask each of you the same question, and then we'll go into sort of individual questions for each of you as well. Sure. So my first question is, as Commonwealth scholars, how well represented do you feel at the University of Edinburgh? Ugo, do you want to start? Yeah, okay. Um, well, I would say we are well, a bit represented. I mean, uh, of course, those of us from the Commonwealth of Nations are somewhat even though we are in the minority, I personally feel we are represented because through the Commonwealth's um, scholars engagement, social engagement, I've been able to meet um, fellow scholars from different Commonwealth nations, from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Southern Africa, Ghana, and so many other places. And it gave me the opportunity to hear from their own experiences. I personally, it's my first time of leaving Nigeria. And some of the experiences I'm having in Edinburgh are more like a first time having to meet people from different Commonwealth countries, rehearing their own kind of challenges and some a bit of their own history firsthand. So even though we are still in minority, let me use that word now, but I think the Commonwealth it's fully represented in Edinburgh through the Commonwealth Scholarship. Yeah. Okay, great. Rebecca, I'll ask you the same question. I think I would slightly disagree because, okay, probably it's since he's doing his master's, maybe he has got more interaction with other government uh, scholars during the master's program. Whereas at the PhD level, I guess there are very, very few government scholars at the university. 
And uh, sadly, we only meet them during the CSC event, but not at the university itself. So, you know, I, 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 I think, I think um, as far as representation from a Commonwealth Commission itself, there's no problem really. I mean, they've, they've been fair and, you know, we have people from diverse nations, as, as, as Ugo was saying. But as far as Edinburgh University itself is concerned, I think we might need to do more from the university side to bring the scholars together uh, at a single forum. Just, just as we do at the CSC, you know, with uh, various workshops. We've got regional networks, of course. But as I said, looking at um, the, the disparity of studies, so masters versus PhDs, PhD students generally do live a very, very lo- lonely life compared to the master's students. You know, we are only living in our libraries or in our offices or labs. We hardly get to meet people. So I guess, yeah, I- I'm not sure maybe... It's peculiar to PhD students, or I don't know. And, and Vivek, what do you think would some of the benefits would be to, to feeling more included at the university? Well, the obvious benefit is because university itself is, I mean, university life particularly, used to be very insular life, and it still is to some extent very, very insular um, from, from the world outside. And um, since we've got so many international students living in the UK, and particularly in Edinburgh. And in this, this era of, you know, we, we might say general differences of opinions, uh, social differences, political differences, you know, could be actually brought at the table because we are going to be the policymakers of tomorrow because we are, we are training ourselves in the university here and we are going to be impacting on the society tomorrow. So it, the inculcation of, what should I say, um, the virtue of listening to other voices, you know, could be much more, I guess, carried out by, by, by more inclusion. It is, I mean, inclusion is there, but more visible, I should say, inclusion. Um, I think I might, I might go on to a question particular to Ugo here now. You've chosen to study African development at MSc level at the University of Edinburgh. As an African who, as you say, you'd never left Nigeria... Why did you choose to study that subject at a UK university? And what advantages do you think there are to studying such a subject outside of Africa? Okay, um, first and foremost, the reason why I chose to, I'm very much interested in development. Um, I see myself as part of those who would think out development solutions to the current development crisis facing uh, Africa as a continent and Nigeria in particular, we faced with a lot of development challenges. And I see myself as the future of Nigeria. I see myself as those who are going to contribute to some of these contribute solutions to some of these challenges we are facing. And going for the right knowledge and the right skill is going to help me make a useful impact in the future. Now, the reason why I chose to study development studies or African development at the University of Edinburgh as first and foremost, the scholarship opportunity. I can't possibly afford to do the program as a self-funded student. No matter how much I try to mobilize resources personally, I can't. It's a very expensive venture and the scholarship opportunity was one of the eye-catchers for me. And secondly, Edinburgh has the Center for African Studies and the center, as much as I know, has you know done a lot of research and has 
a huge repository of research on Africa. And that was also one of the major attractions for me as well. And I would say one of the advantages of studying development outside of the continent, there are quite a few of them. I'm going to just mention a few of them. One is studying such a program outside of Africa offers me the opportunity to learn in a better environment. Now, all my education has been in Nigeria. But I can tell you that the few months I've spent in Edinburgh has been a game changer for me. The learning experience, the support experience has been something else. It has been amazing and I'm really, really motivated to do more. And such opportunity, I don't think I would have afforded such if I'd stayed back to study the same program. I mean, there are very few programs that are development oriented in the Nigerian system. I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak from the Nigerian. There are very few universities offering development studies in Nigerian universities. So what I've experienced so far in the UK has been quite a game changer for me and a life changing experience. And secondly, one of the advantages is access to uh, unlimited resources. Now, availability of the right resources is at the heart of university education. And a good number of universities, like my, my university, of course, funding was an issue. Most universities in Nigeria, for instance, they have a little bit of challenge with regards to funding. And how much at your disposal determines how much resources you can acquire. The third advantage is getting to meet people from different parts of the world has given me a wide, broader view about what the world looks like. Meeting people from Asia, North America, you know, different backgrounds and having to learn in the same environment with them is a life-changing experience. I get to hear from their experiences. They also get to hear from my own experiences. And studying outside the continent gave me the opportunity to share some of the African experiences to especially those who, for instance, in my program, a good number of us aspire to become development planners. And some of them probably have not been to Africa. So being in the same class with them gave me the opportunity to share some African experiences because I see these individuals as those who are going to shape development thoughts and thinking in the future. And by the time I exchange my experience, African experience, they have a better understanding of the African experience. And when they're in a position to direct development agenda, because believe me, most development agenda, including those affecting Africa, is still shaped by Western ideals. It's still dictated from the West. So studying outside the continent gave me the opportunity to meet with future development thinkers and um, future development planners and sharing my experiences with them, kind of, you know, give them a better understanding of Africa and what someone from Africa tells you about Africa and what you experience with someone from Africa. And, um, I think that's basically, I would also say the West remains the model for development and having to be in an environment, Western environment and learning a Western environment kind of helps me understand not just how the West is able to manage its development and how it's developed to the stage where it is, but also it gave me the opportunity to immerse myself among the people to understand how they are thinking as individuals and members of the community also affect uh, the, the development process. And in this, we are be able to understand how they think and how they react to development. And so doing, when I go back home, when I come home now as a future, when I'm in a position 
I would plan development such that it's going to affect both the thinking of fellow Nigerians now and also the entire system. Yeah. That's great. Thank you, Hugo. That's really interesting. Um, Vivek, just, just picking up on, on some of what Hugo was saying and, and the sort of ideas that, that development has been shaped by the West. I mean, certainly in philosophy, the, the same could be said to be true, is, is the most prominent uh, sort of parts of the academy in philosophy are the dead white male parts of <laughs> philosophy. I'm, yeah, I'm just wondering what, what, how you feel about your, your position as an Indian studying philosophy and, and what sort of influence you think you can have within Edinburgh um, bringing some of your thoughts on Eastern philosophy. It's very interesting because um, I don't consider myself as an Indian, to be honest, uh, <laughs> in the sense that um, once you decide to study philosophy, philosophy very quickly teaches us to kind of transgress the national boundaries, so to speak. But as far as cultural uh, experiences go, of course, I'm an Indian living in the UK. And you're, you're, you're quite right that philosophy uh, in some quarters is looked upon as the study of those dead white men. But uh, I think, first of all, philosophy is not East or West. Philosophy deals with very, very basic fundamental questions which, which, are, which are basically asked by any human being uh, who is an inquiring agent. So when she, she, she looks at her life, you know, uh, looks around and tries to figure out her position in, in this life, and that sort of thing. So philosophy, or basically the idea of philosophizing, is is not dependent on any any um, culture or any geographical location. But saying that, of course, it's nonetheless true that um, the ways of philosophizing are very very different in the West and from the from the East. In the West, we've got uh, sort of more scholastic or academic kind of philosophy, where philosophy was confined and, and is confined to some extent even now. Those classrooms versus in the way, uh, in the in, in the east, for example, philosophy would be completely um, holistic in the sense that you know you or I would study philosophy not in the classroom because the questions philosophy addresses are not questions which are academic questions but which are living questions. So that's the difference between east and west. Apparent difference between east and west. I don't agree, but this is nonetheless the way people kind of um, lay out the, the, the East and West. Coming to Edinburgh, of course, Edinburgh is one of the best institutions in the world. And when I got my acceptance letter from Edinburgh, I was quite happy because I knew that I'm, I'm coming to town to study with, uh, study, study Edinburgh University where David Hume had studied. And David Hume, as you know, is one of the, the best known voices from the West. Um, uh, particularly from Scottish Enlightenment, you know, and um, Hume's influence, Hume has a couple of influences from Eastern tradition, particularly his material philosophy. Sorry, I, I, you can stop me if you want to. No, no, no. <laughs> but his material philosophy, I mean, his, the idea of uh, basically critiquing what he calls the problem, problem of induction, basically, is a very, very Eastern, particularly Indian idea, where we have a group of philosophers called Charvakas, who happened to be between probably 5th century or even earlier than that, who gave this problem, you know, problem of induction, saying that, for example, if you see one crow which is black, and if you see second crow which is black, can you then conclude that all crows are black? 
you know, how can you conclude that unless you have observed all the crews from the past, from the from the present and from the future? So that's called the problem of induction. Hume kind of picked up the same problem. But obviously, not many people would be aware of this. And I'm not saying, therefore, that what came first, whether it came from India or it came from the West. But the idea was that I'm going to study in the institution where he studied. So I was quite fascinated by it. And today, as we know, the theory of knowledge, which happens to be my area, Edinburgh is basically one of the best um, universities to go to. So there was no contest, really. As soon as I got my, my offer letter and an accept- acceptance letter from the university, I was overjoyed to come, come to the UK. Because we lived in the UK culture. We speak English more than we, we actually speak our own language. We, we listen to... You know, those old British sitcom shows, for example, Yes Minister. I, I grew up listening to Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, or Mind Your Language, you know, and listening to BBC was the great way to improve our English. So we were quite close to British culture, but actually coming and living here and realising that Scottish culture is not British culture, <laughs> that too was a very, very interesting experience for me. Yeah, so I guess, yeah. It's, 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 it's really interesting to, to be here. That's great. Thank you, Vivek. Um, Ergo, uh, Vivek spoke then about um, some of the Eastern influences on Western philosophy. Both in India and in Nigeria, a, a lot of, a lot of the, the structures in those two countries are colonial structures, are colonial structures yes. and that they were inherited from, um, from the sort of British <clears throat> Empire and have remained, um, those structures have remained... Relatively stable throughout, y- exactly. even today. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, Vivek is taking the words out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, they do yeah. remain stable today. And and I, I guess I was just wondering, um, you know, we're talking about diversity and inclusion at the University of Edinburgh. What I'm wondering is, is are there sort of aspects of Nigerian culture and education and ways of teaching and learning at, that are Indigenous to Nigeria that you think could benefit the curriculum in Nigerian universities, but then also in Western universities as well. Yes, I think I think there are some practices. First and foremost, I would say when you talk about, I'm going to speak as a development practitioner because that is what I'm trained to be. Now, my understanding of development is it comes from within. It's it's not something you import. It's not something that is imported, but it's something that grows over time, itself evolves. And from a question, I would say most of our teaching practices is influenced by our contact with the West, with the, with the, the, the British. Uh, English is used in the curriculum and most of our curriculum are modeled after the British curriculum. I still find that quite problematic and I've on a few occasions shared my, my reservations about that. You see, the people's culture which is their way of life now, including their language, their belief, are part and parcel of development. Now, because your way, the way you understand your environment, the way you think, kind of shapes the solutions you find from your environment. Because that is what development is all about, trying to find solutions to some challenges you have about in your, within your environment. Now, if you find yourself trying to think from somebody else's lens, it's a bit problematic. And the reason why it seems so that Africa has tried to, has been playing catch-up over the years in terms of development is because we are still learning development from the lens, 
from the British lens, let me put it that way now, which is a bit problematic. Personally, I believe that the education system should be indigenous to a greater extent. Now, I always give examples. I keep saying that if you look at China, China is one country that didn't do away with its culture and tradition. It integrated its culture and tradition in its education system because your culture and tradition largely influence your teaching and your thinking and the way you solve problems. Now, China has been able to infuse that. Most Eastern countries now, China, Japan, a good number of them were able to infuse their culture and their tradition, including the language, in the education curriculum. And by so doing, they've been able to accelerate in terms of development. But if you look at Africa, a good number of African countries still cling on to the colonial structure, colonial education system. I learn in English, but most, I'm an Igbo, but I learn in English. Most of my thinking is in Igbo. So having to think in Igbo and translate to English depends so much on my knowledge about English, and it becomes a problem. I can, when I speak Igbo, I speak very fluently, I, I relate, but when I speak English, sometimes I kind of, yeah, I have to learn how to use the words, how to write in particular, and that same way it affects how we're able to solve problems about the environment. And fortunately, the education system has made it so. So my, in my view, I think if teaching practices, particularly in Nigeria, can begin to in, in, inculcate some cultural dimensions to it, possibly identify some local languages that can be integrated into the education teaching curriculum. I think it's going to help a lot because I believe you can't speak foreign language to development. People should be able to understand development in their own language, in their own way, and by so doing, they'll be able to achieve development. So if that can be improved for indigenous teaching practices and indigenous language can be inculcated in education curriculum, particularly in my home country, because it's something I've been advocated for. I think it's going to help a long way in accelerating our intake of development ideas, better understanding of our immediate environment, and by so doing, we accelerate. So, uh, what kind of practices are we talking about here? Of course, we is to introduce the native languages. But that's it. Yes. But how about evaluation? Because after all, uh, how, do, how would we evaluate the students? I mean, can you name some practices we, which are indigenous to your country? Like if religion, it's also an indigenous practice. Because religion, before the coming of the West, most of our philosophy, philosophy student, most of African philosophy is fused with the African tradition. Now, if African philosophy can also be brought into light in Western philosophy. I think because philosophy to a greater extent shaped uh, development thinking, uh, you know, scholarly approach to development. So if African philosophy can also be infused in Western philosophy, that would also help. Yeah, but but remember, we are also talking about the university model here. Where there is a clear-cut model of evaluation. So are you going to suggest different evaluations of the students, how will they get degrees or that sort of a thing? I'm, I'm just trying to understand because if the, if the question is about indigenous teaching practices, then do we have indigenous evaluative practices? So are you, are you saying get rid of the classrooms at all levels? Well, I think that is where university will have to do something about because the way we think and the way 
people from the West think kind of varies. Now, I think that is where the evaluation comes in. The teaching can go side, can cannot, I think it's ideal the teaching goes side by side with the evaluation. Because the essence of evaluation is to know whether the teaching has made an impact. So indigenous evaluation method can also be um, integrated. So it goes side by side. So if, for instance, I know the university teaches some African languages, but then one method of teaching indigenous to Africans is music. Now, if the university, for instance, um, chooses to adopt and indigenous teaching practices. I think a method of evaluation such as music, people being able to express themselves through music or even arts can serve as a means of evaluating understanding about uh, a particular concept. You know, there are people who can express themselves in music, there are people who can express themselves in arts, and by so doing, it indicates or it shows that the person actually understood what is being taught. And like I said, the essence of evaluation is to know if the teaching actually has an impact. So there should be more like a diverse means of evaluation, not really very narrow means of evaluation. Vivek, would you like to reflect on that? What, what do you think some Eastern teaching and evaluation practices might be? That's so what might the differences be? That's a tricky question. Uh, if you're talking about the university system. We had ancient universities in India as well. We've got uh, Nalanda, for example, was the ancient university during the Buddhist period. Very, very, very famous. And at least there were 10,000 faculty members there at that time. So the university model in India at that time was actually pretty similar to what we have here because some of the subjects were much more academic. For example, logic is much more academic than, let's say, a living subject. I'll tell you a small story, maybe that might help. Is it okay? Yeah. So a scholar who recently had learned logic from Nalanda University is sitting under the tree, a coconut tree, and uh, he is reflecting on the nature actually doesn't really know proportion. If, the, if nature knew proportions, then the coconut tree, which is so tall, should have tall, fl tall fruits and, and you know, heavy fruits but the fruits are really, really small compared to the size of a tree. And it so happens that the fruit, or the coconut falls on his head and he is unconscious. And his teacher comes and says, before talking about logic, we have to learn to see where to apply the rules of logic. And that you cannot teach at the university, that you can only be taught through living experiences. So some of the, some of the subjects, as I was saying, are, are academic, but some of the subjects are living subjects. For example, ethics is a living subject. Governance is a living subject. Politics or polity, you know, political science is a living subject, more than academic subject. So the evaluation, again, I, I kind of, kind of am, am stuck at the evaluation part because how are we going to award students degrees about, uh, of, of, and how, how are we going to certify that they have learned something? I know that today's practice is not the ideal practice, but nonetheless, in absence of any other kind of practices, we are stuck with this kind of a practice where student, you know, studies or submits essays and, you know, gets um, a certificate. She gets an evaluation uh, based on what she writes. Maybe she studies only for like three days before the exam and gets a degree. I know I did uh, <laughs> many, many times, especially 
you know, when I was younger, I didn't understand. The things are changing now, I think, because now we are talking about, and you know, you can't really have these, these kind of practices right at the university. You have to do this from a school, a basic school level, where now we are, we are having different evaluation system rather than having exams once a year or twice a year. We are having group activities, you know, team spirit, which will, which will inculcate team spirit, that sort of a thing. But again, there are limitations of those practices. When it, when it comes to university or colleges, I don't see how we are going to implement these kinds of modern, or not, not, not even modern, but these kinds of uh, differing evaluation practices. As far as India is concerned, universities will, would always be outside the city. They, would, they, they were called gurukulas. Guru is obviously a preceptor, not a teacher, but a preceptor. There's a difference between these two. And kula refers to house. So house of learning, her, her preceptor's house, which, which, which would be situated outside the city environs. It would be in the forest where the students would actually go at the age of eight till the age of 25 and they would learn both male and female students actually would stay away from their house, uh, from, from their family after, the, after their age. And they would learn various sciences, you know, sciences uh, and uh, humanities and also housekeeping and everything, basically. Um, an ancient system would, would, would teach you professional, uh, professional skills would be developed. Um, your individual personality development skills would be developed. And the evaluation would be basically carried out by, by the preceptor and the team of preceptors. And at the age of 25 or, or, or thereabouts, when the preceptor thinks that you are ready, that your, your, your learning is complete, then you are, suppo- you're, you are expected to come back to society and uh, you know, uh, use this knowledge which, which, which one has gained in the gurukula for the betterment of the society. So that was the, the ancient model. I don't know, it would be interesting to see how this might be <laughs> uh, applicable to modern system. I, I, I'm not quite sure whether it can be. We are now talking about more specialised um, curriculum, you know, mm. rather than a, a general curriculum. So I don't, I don't know, really. No, Did that I... was fascinating. Um, just, just drawing on what we've discussed so far, how, from, from the sort of, from your course, Ugo, at, at Edinburgh, do you feel like your reading list is diverse enough? You've spoken a lot about um, sort of development being a sort of generally a Western approach to developing another society, such as countries in Africa. Um, do you think there's enough in, in your reading list and in the curriculum for your master's course that is diverse, that does include the different voices from Africa that, that you think should be included in that curriculum? I would slightly agree and disagree. The reason why I say I would slightly agree is I've come across a couple of readings from African authors, um, but I would say they are less than 2% of the entire readings I've had. And I, I wouldn't say if that can be classified as diverse, uh, which is um, something I think can be worked upon. Now, if we are talking about Africa, then the thoughts of African scholars should be somehow, or in some ways, you know, account for a good number of the readings. Yeah, I've, I've come across quite a good number of readings from African authors, which are very, very interesting, but much of the readings I've had so far in my program is still dominated by the West, even though they are talking about Africa. Yeah, one can actually have a scholarly expertise 
about Africa. But like Vivek said, there's a difference between a knowledge acquired and a knowledge that you acquired from experience. Now, what an African author would explain about Africa is a combination of academic knowledge and lived experience. So if you now find academic research or academic knowledge about Africa only, you discover that it kind of creates an imbalance because you're hearing from people or you're reading from people who know Africa from a distance. But people who are Africans are not, you're not hearing their own story, which makes it kind of a single story, sort of. So I think if, I believe there are a good number of African authors that the university can actually include in the reading list of my program, for instance. Since it's about Africa, then a good number of the reading should come from Africa. Sadly, in the social sciences, it's not like in the natural sciences where you have to follow a particular formula or in social sciences mainly revolve around one's thought and perception. One's writing is usually influenced by perception and thoughts. And the problem of bias is always there. So it's good for one to have, even though bias is something that cannot be taken away, but I think if you are able to have a balanced view, probably opposing views on a particular team, I think that would help you have a balanced perspective about certain issues. If you're reading from um, Western authors, you're also reading from African authors, you, as a future planner, a future development planner, you kind of have a broader view. Because one of the problems that has been facing Africa over time is more like a one-sided sharing of knowledge. There's one side picture about Africa. A lot of stories about Africa are not being told about by Africans now. And I think if that can change, I think people would have a better understanding of the situation on ground in Africa and be able to find possible solutions to some of the challenges confronting most African countries. So in answering your question, I would say slightly diverse, but I'm not really satisfied by the level of diversity in my reading list. And and how do you think the university could approach increasing that diversity? I mean, both in your program and, I mean, if, it, if it's that poor in a program that's about Africa, then, you know, I imagine in other, in other disciplines it would be uh, even worse. So how do you think the university could best approach that? Is, is it on an individual academic level? Should it be a university-wide project? Yeah, well, I think there are ways the university can can do this. And one is to establish relationship with most African universities. Because, I mean, African universities, they are more like a citadel of learning and a home for intellectuals. And I believe that these intellectuals have something to contribute. So if the university can establish some form of relationship with most, uh, I don't know if Edinburgh University has any relationship with most African universities, but if they can do so, I think it's going to help solve this problem, kind of a cross exchange of ideas. And that would also help. And secondly, in my program, I know recently they, they increased the number of Africans on the staff list. I feel it's a welcome development, but I think there's, there's still more to be done. Now, because employing an African who probably spent much of his education in the West is different from employing an African who has spent much of his scholarly experience in Africa. So I wouldn't say that most of those who are employed 
and for instance, and I'm not trying to be specific now, and not, but I think if the university and such collaborations the university can have with other African universities would help, where you have scholars from Africa come, kind of a visiting scholar from African university, I think it's going to really help if the university cannot and have these African scholars in their uh, services employ them. I think if they can create a forum where African scholars, scholars from African universities, can come over to Edinburgh and speak to students who are interested in African studies, I think it's going to really, really help create the balance we're talking about, we the diversity, the actual diversity we, we intend to achieve. Fantastic. Thanks, Sugo. Vivek, did you, are you doing any teaching? I'm not sure. Have you done any teaching in Oh, yes. Edinburgh? Um, no, not, not at, at Edinburgh. I mean, informally, of course, um, I took a couple of uh, tutoring uh, sessions, but um, on paper, no. How, how, do you, how do you feel about the issue of, of reading lists and, and how diverse reading lists are at, at sort of British universities and in Edinburgh <laughs> in particular? If you're talking about philosophy, which, which I probably am in a position to answer, but not for other... Um, subject areas. Mm -hmm. I see the problem to be twofold. Unfortunately, Indian scholars are not publishing in accredited peer-reviewed journals yet. That's a, there's a dearth of publications from Indian side. It's changing now, but sadly, we don't even have a single peer-reviewed journal in India on par with, let's say, Analysis or Mind, which are like famous journals in, in, in Britain, for example. And um, that's the shortcoming I personally feel very keen, uh, keenly about. And I would like to address this when I go back, hopefully when I get a job uh, at the university there. But yes, yeah, so it turns out that since we have dearth of uh, scholarship from Indian uh, academicians about Indian philosophy, it turns out that Western scholars are writing about Indian philosophy. And um, people refer to those because they think they are more trustworthy then they're in the Indian counterparts, because Indian counterparts are not, not uh, publishing in, in peer-reviewed journals yet. There's no culture of publication in India. Uh, the tenure, your tenure does not really depend on how many publications you've got. Things are changing now, but it's been almost like once you get, get your tenure, then, then you are set for life. Now things are changing now. So hopefully, you know, we will see some improvement when it comes to Indian scholars publishing. And if for some reason you think there is a cultural bias about Indian scholars, then you should start your own academic journals. So that, that's what uh, Indians should do. Uh, but sadly, they're not doing that. So I, I guess as an Indian myself, I, mean, I, I, I feel very strongly about, about this. So I don't want to blame anybody. You know, I, I can't say that you know, uh, University X is not diverse enough in, in terms of its reading material because there is no reading material coming from the native population of, of that country. So yes, but saying that, if you're doing your PhD, you've got a very select, uh, selective topic, and it's a very, very specialized topic. And it doesn't really depend on who your, your author is. Uh, you know, we just go by what the theory is propounded there, rather than who has written this paper or, or, or a book. So in that sense, I think it's really strange to talk about diversity in uh, of reading list in philosophy at least if we talk about diversity of curriculum in philosophy yes then we can have a discussion but reading list per se i don't know i'd like to challenge you on that one i think vivek mm -hmm. we've spoken about the traditional white male philosophers 
you know, and, and there's a lot of research to show that a diversity of voices, you know, different genders, different cultures, different religions, you know, is, is one of the best ways to innovate in an academic discipline. So do you think that, that if there were more voices in publishing, I mean, female voices, for example, as well as voices from, for example, India, um, publishing in these top journals, that the ideas that you're talking about could sort of move on? That Absolutely, yes, of course, of course they should, and they will. But the problem is, see, let's, let's, let's face it, the Western model of publication is the best right now, okay? They've got the system which is in place for at least, you know, 300, 400 years minimum, right? So instead of changing that to suit, instead of lowering the bar to include people's voices, why shouldn't we basically help those underprivileged voices to, to, be, to come on par with, with what we've got in the best possible way? So that's, that's, that's what university should and does actually uh, deliver. It, it makes us uh, capable enough to publish rather than lowering the publishing bar, you know. That sort of, uh, I guess, and that, that, should be, that should be the policy of any teaching institute, not to lower bars in the name of uh, equality or in the name of diversity. Because, you know, that, that's really insulting for people like me who come from, you know, let's say, quote-unquote, third-world countries, where we will be given some, quote-unquote, concessions, okay, so we will lower the bar for you so that you can publish in the journal. No. Rather, make me so sufficient, or I, I should be so sufficient, and I should be challenging, competitive enough to publish articles on my own merit rather than where I come from, you see. I, I, I kind of have... I don't know whether I'm trying to... I'm, I'm trying to situate what you said, because if... We, we talked about knowledge evaluation. There is no one particular model that you would say it's perfect for model evaluation. Yeah, one of the many challenges most African scholars are facing is the ability to publish in reputable journals. A good number of them have been able to achieve that, but improvement needs to be done. And you see, these reputable journals we, we talk about, most of, most of them are Western journals. And the standard we are set by Western scholars. Now, the way I, the much I know about Africa, the much I know about Nigerian politics is different from a professor of politics at Oxford. If I express it in my own way, he might not really understand it that same way, and it becomes a problem. If we 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 don't want to advocate more like lowering the bar. No, the bar shouldn't be lowered. But what I would suggest is let's have different methods of knowledge evaluation so that people who have a different perspective or different evaluation or uh, thinking method from you can also be accommodated. We are talking about inclusion here. And if you have one particular standard for all, you discover that it becomes problematic because one size fits all doesn't really work. If these journals can begin to have different methods of evaluation, accommodating people from different scholarly background. I think it's going to really help. It's not a question of lowering the bar now, but being a bit of flexible, having people from different backgrounds so that you can have a broader view of things, I feel. And like you rightly pointed out, if the university can also increase the capacity of African scholars, African university lecturers, possibly African professors, to publish in reputable journals, I think it's going to help. I, I, 
I, I agree with you. But see, the problem is, if for some reason we feel, let's say, that we are un- underrepresented uh, in, in, in well-reputed journals, why wait for the reputed journals? Let's start our own journal. It doesn't really take money. We have online journals coming up nowadays, which are really, really doing, re- doing really, really well. There is no word limit. There is no uh, set standard for your publication. You can publish in online journals. And if you don't agree or if you disagree with, let's say, an article published in Journal X, you could, you could write a reply to, to that person's uh, article. So I'm saying that there are ways which are there. And I don't think there are some anecdotes uh, behind closed doors saying that, you know, people's journal articles are rejected because they come from this background or that background. But I think we have a double blind system of evaluation, evaluating articles. I personally evaluated three articles for, um, for, for a journal, which my professor asked me to do so. And I did not know who the articles came from. And the editor did not know whose article has been sent to whom. So really, the bar is, I mean, the, the transparency is, is there. So I don't think people's articles are rejected because they belong to a particular strata of society or they belong to a particular country or, you know, they don't have English sounding name. I think that's a myth. Articles are rejected, at least in most cases, only because they don't fit the standard. And as I said, we shouldn't really insist that the standard should be lowered in order to, to, to accommodate these articles. Rather, we should, if my article is rejected for some reason, it's an opportunity for me to learn why it was rejected and correct myself. Because we are talking about an academic framework, which is universal. It's, it's like, this is the academic framework, which is accepted by almost all scholars in the world. Now, I don't think we should tamper with the system so easily, you know. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm not flexible enough or it shouldn't be flexible enough. As far as topics are concerned, yes, you, you can be flexible enough to include more topics. But I don't think flex, flexibility should stretch to publish any article just because, you know, this person has sent an article. Unless the article fits, you know in a journal's standard, it, it can't be published. It's as simple as that. <laughs> I know that sounds a bit... Uh, uh, it does. I, I, I'm going to challenge you again. Please do. So. The, the, the idea of a universal standard. I, I think I, I question who created this universal standard. We all did. But did we? Do you feel represented in the sort of, you know, the however many hundred years of academic standards that have led to this type of publishing? Do you personally feel represented in that? I'm not sure, right? As a woman, I do. Okay, I answer this. There are two ways to answer this question. First, first and foremost is this. If you ask me personally, no, I don't feel re- represented yet. That's because I'm my generation from my family. I'm the first one to come to the university. So obviously, I'm not going to have that much capital to basically take from. I mean, I don't have a capital invested from my family members' capital, I'm talking in terms of knowledge capital, not in terms of money. Uh, expertise capital, so to speak, where to go, who to, where to apply, and that sort of thing. Th- there was no training in my family about university education. I'm the first one who went to the university. So it will take some time for me to feel at home. And But the onus is on me to make sure that I my voices are heard, even if the space is not there. And I don't think the space is not there. The space is there. I'm blind. I'm from India, doing my PhD here at Edinburgh University. What more do I need? But are you, are you transforming yourself to fit into that structure? Or are you saying that your inclusion in that structure will change, will challenge the more... 
I think it's both ways, right? The more and more diverse students like me who come to the mainstream, more and more mainstream has to rethink its structure, and people do. That's why we have evaluation systems. That's where we have uh, feedbacks, you know, students' feedbacks, teachers' feedbacks, dis- disability services' feedbacks. So pe- it's, 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 it's a system where, through interaction with diverse students, it kind of grows, it kind of evolves. It's organic, it's not static. But at the same time, at the core of this, of this system, there are some, some values, like, say, transparency is, is, a, is a core value, which we can't tamper with, right? Mm. As, as, long, as far as publishing is concerned, for example. And if I feel that my article has been rejected because of lack of transparency, there are mechanisms for me to challenge that decision. So there are always facilities where I can challenge the decision if I don't agree with it, mm. okay? And the system then is on a bound to respond uh, to my challenge. And most often it does so. And if it doesn't do so, then of course we can, we can think about it. But by and large, I guess the system does deliver what it, what it sets out to deliver. I mean, I'm talking about academic, uh, yes. and, and, and particularly here at Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I do absolutely understand, and I think that the more diverse the, the population is, the better things will get. Yes. Um, Ugo, do you think they're moving quickly enough? Oh, that's a different um, one. <laughs> yeah, it's a very tricky question, but I think it's been a steady progress. The university has been conscious of for this, this opportunity to share about diversity the world understanding of diversity and how the university has fared in terms of diversity shows that the university is willing to, you know, pick up in terms of making progress uh, to on the issue of inclusion. And I think it's something that can be achieved. You know, when when you talk about progress, it's not something that happens really leap. Issues about diversity, it takes time, but it's steady progress. And I'm sure where the university was five years ago or ten years ago, it's probably not where it is today, meaning that it's making progress. And I think if it's continued the same way, I think the whole essence of diversity will be achieved in the near future. So I think the university is on course. I wouldn't say it's too slow or too fast, no, but I think it's making progress and it's right on course. Okay, all right. I just want to pick up on something um, that we were talking about earlier. I think Ugo was was talking about how... um, you know, a university like Edinburgh has a sort of, I, I guess, a responsibility to help African universities build their capacity in sort of research and research uptake. And Vivek, you're talking about the sort of publishing system and how the standards of the publishing system are quite sound and that they're there for a reason. Yeah, in um, academia. In academia, yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. in academia. Yeah. I guess... Um, I'm interested to know your thoughts on, for example, Indian authors who might not have had the sort of assistance that a Western academic might have had. What are ways in which their capacity could be built in order to publish in some of these more prestigious journals? Yeah, that's, that's what we are basically trying to work at now. When I was teaching in, India, uh, in Bombay, for example, our students are not prepared from their school days or even uh, their undergrad days to be independent thinkers. Our curriculum, our system of evaluation, which which comes from Lord Macaulay himself in 1835, uh, was basically more to do with the retention of knowledge which you find in a particular book. So if you could retain that and produce it at the time of, at the time of examination, then you know you're set to be a good uh, scholar. But 
What is required for a scholar is independent thinking, going out, out of the box, questioning the systems, questioning your teachers. And that questioning spirit is sort of lost in Indian academia. And um, students are not encouraged to, to write. And unless their answer matches with that of a, the book, they won't be you know, getting good marks. So that's changing. And that's, that's the change we should bring about as far as undergrad students are concerned. So the students who come to Edinburgh from India are more, more often than not are surprised to see the level of independence the Western students have and their fearlessness, you know, in, in questioning um, their teachers or even, you know, putting, up, putting, putting forth their own ideas in, 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 in the answer sheets. So that's something which is really ad- admirable and that's what we should really pick up from the Western universities and Western ways of uh, teaching system. Because once you are confident enough that you can, and you have an, uh, a, a legitimate voice and you have a legitimate right to question something or right to put, put across your own views, and they should be as much respected as David Hume's views should be respected, for example, then of course not, nobody will stop us from publishing. It's only the lack of confidence really is, 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 is the key here. Yeah, I think that's an important point. No good. Did you want to comment on that at all? I would say I would like to join in what he said, the level of independence. Um, some of us from not from the West now have enjoyed having to study here. And it, it, it goes to show that the university is very much interested in accommodating uh, diverse views and certain issues. The knowledge is it's, it's something that like I said, it's, it comes from within. My understanding about an issue, it's certainly different from your understanding about same issues and being able to accommodate each other's views kind of help to broaden our view. And I think that is where the university system here in Edinburgh has, has gotten it really, really well. Even though we still feel the university hasn't, the reading list or probably the staff composition hasn't been so impressive. I think the, the willingness of the staff and the program itself to accommodate views coming from Africa, especially the students, it's, it's, been, it's more like compensating for the absence of diversity in other aspects. And I think it's something that the university can pick up from and also most universities in the UK can also pick up from. That's great. Thanks, Igor. Um, Vivek, what about the curriculum? Do you think that the curriculum in philosophy in, in the West and at the University of Edinburgh is diverse enough? I don't think so, no, it's not. Because in the West, we've got particular departments who specialise in one particular aspect of philosophy. For example, the University of Edinburgh is known for its specialisation in knowledge or epistemology theory of knowledge. But even then, there is plenty of room for inclusion of, of diversity in the curriculum itself. Now, in the States, for example, the system is slightly different. In the States, they, their, their curriculum is much more wider and much more wide-ranging and inclusive than the UK curriculum is. And I was talking to, the, talking to one, of, one of the faculty members from the University of California, and she was saying that that's because students are willing to opt for different curriculums. But I, I don't think that's the case. If students don't know, for example, what is Indian uh, since I'm from, I mean, I studied Indian philosophy, I'll talk about Indian philosophy. So if students don't know whether there is something called Indian philosophy in the first place, 
how will they opt for it? If students don't know, for example, that there can be a comp competitive study between Hume and Charvakas, as I was talking about, they will not know this. And if they, do, if they don't know this, they will not opt for this and they will not do a, a research on this. And India has a rich philosophical tradition. It's not only spirituality and it's not only religion. That's just a small part of it. But this, this misconception that Indian philosophy means, of course, you chant Om, you know, you become vegetarian or even vegan. And, you know, that's, that's just one aspect of philosophy. We've got very rich social philosophy. We have got very rich political philosophy. We've got rich e economics, you know, rich ethics, for example. Our um, scriptures, or particularly uh, the, the epic poems like Mahabharata, is so relevant today in contemporary times. For example, we have countries which are equally powerful in terms of their resources, let's say, and in terms of their armed forces. And they have to coexist with each other. And how, how can one nation coexist with another who happens to be on its equal footing? That's a relevant, relevant question today, which is addressed in the text of Mahabharata. So I'm not saying that Mahabharata is greater than something in the West or Indian philosophy is greater than Western philosophy. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we need to pay attention to Indian philosophy and Indian voices, philosophical voices, because now India, you know, it's, it's, a, it's high time really to, to kind of jettison the colonial mentality where it was said that, you know, India does not really have a rich philosophical tradition. We will tell them what philosophy is all about. And that's, that's what Macaulay was doing, you know, and that probably that was the hour of the need. But now the needs have changed. So now we definitely, definitely need to include curriculum of, uh, which, which will pertain to Indian philosophy. Not only Indian philosophy, but Chinese philosophy. Zen Buddhism, for example, from Japan. Confucianism, Taoism. There's, there's, there's a lot of scope for this. I think, and we have not yet tapped into that potentials. So yeah, that's the one thing I, I really feel very strongly about. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so yeah, Ugo, is there any, any last comments, anything you'd like to add? Since the university is interested in you know, improving diversity, I think it should be a two-way thing. Now, in as much as the university is uh, affording Africans I'm, I'm definitely I'm going to speak as an African because I'm African, so I'm speaking from my own point of view. And it's a personal opinion anyway. It's not like it's something shared by others, but it's something personal to me. I feel in a bid to achieve diversity and inclusion, I think it can be achieved in two ways. One, it has given opportunities for Africans to come and school in Edinburgh to assess some of the opportunities, academic opportunities here in Edinburgh. It's good. But I think the university can do more by having some African scholars, probably lecturers or professors in African institutions, come over to Edinburgh and have students here in Edinburgh hear from African lecturers. And also these lecturers come to understand how the system operates here. Because it seems both our universities, but most African universities and Western universities seem to be a kind of disconnect. And if the university can see a need to begin to talk about diversity and inclusion, not just at individual level, but also at university level now. I think it's going to go a long, whole long way in improving the image of University of Edinburgh as an institution that is interested in diversity and inclusion, but also help 
to bring about that standardization in knowledge, which we all you know, identify as one of the shortcomings of why most African authors are not featured in Western journal. Yeah, so that's more like a final note from me. Thank you, Ugo. Vivek, final comments? Well, um, I can say this much, that I'm absolutely glad to be in Edinburgh. And uh, as I said, uh, apart from the curriculum, I guess universities are in the right direction, right? Because inclusion of diversity is an ongoing process. You can never say that it's completed. So obviously, it's an evolving, ongoing process. And once they sort of talk about new curriculum, which includes Eastern philosophies, I'll be much more happy. Thank you. Thank you, Vivek. And thank you to the University of Edinburgh for yes. having our representations from the Commonwealth Scholarship Commission um, to discuss this very important subject.